God's anointed king is on the run, but he need not fear his enemies because God protects him. And I stand on every promise of your word. Grace sufficient, grace for me, grace for all who will believe. It will stand on every promise of your word. Good morning. Okay, so you've heard the stories. A band of merry men hiding in the woods, misfits, those who are in a lot of debt. There's a wicked and inept king, and there's escape after narrow escape. Now some of you at this point may be thinking of Robin Hood. Legend has it that Robin Hood lived around 1,000 years ago in Sherwood Forest in England leading his merry band of men to rob from the rich and give to the poor. Seems like the legend has kind of become less and less violent as it has been retold over the years. There is very little fact that can be discovered in the stories of Robin Hood, but they've definitely become very well-loved stories. And why is it that Robin Hood always seems to be able to escape. Well, he had a little bit of luck, a few good friends, and he himself was very clever, right? I mean, there's a reason that in the old animated Disney version, Robin Hood was played by a fox. But we aren't gonna spend much more time this morning on Robin Hood. Around 2,000 years before Robin Hood, lived a man on the run from the king of the land, who also gathered to himself a band of misfits. And while David is, dis is described as clever, we'll see as we read David's story that David's cleverness is not the point. It's not the reason he's able to escape time and time again from Saul. Instead, we see that God is at work protecting David. So unlike the legend of Robin Hood, the true story of the fugitive king, David, is meant to bring the God of David into the spotlight. But the best stories show and don't tell. We have some teachers here who have told your students that. Even when the narrator doesn't directly say, look at what God did, there are times when it feels like the narrator gives us a wink and causes us to realize that there's a lot more going on in this story than a little bit of luck. There's a divine king who reigns over this story and over all stories in history. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21, as we continue our, our series in 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at 1 Samuel 21 to 23 this morning. You can also read along in your bulletins. You may remember from a couple of weeks ago the friendship of Jonathan and David. They had said a tearful goodbye in chapter 20. 
as David would no longer be welcome in King Saul's court. David's best friend Jonathan would mostly be out of the picture as David goes into hiding, but God continues to be with David. Before we begin to read the passage, I'd like to state a main point to help us sum up what's happening in, in the story. That main point is this. God's anointed king is on the run, but he need not fear his enemies because God protects him. God's anointed king is on the run, but he need not fear his enemies because God protects him. So we'll split this main point into three sections, like a play in three acts. So act one could be titled, The Anointed King on the Run. That's 1 Samuel 21 to 22, verse 5. Act two is the enemies of God. That's 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 to 23. And act three is God protects his anointed. That's 1 Samuel 23. If you didn't get each of those points, we'll, get, we'll go over those again as we come to them. So let's begin with Act 1. The anointed king on the run. The anointed king on the run. Please look with me at 1 Samuel 21. We'll read 1 Samuel 21 and we'll read until chapter 22, verse 5. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything in the matter about which I send you and with, with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to him, Lech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. <clears throat> and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances, Saul who struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. 
Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were, him, and there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So continuing, if we think on this structure a little bit like a play, Act 1 can be split up into four scenes. Scene 1 is David's interaction with Ahimelech, the priest, in verses 1 to 9. In considering the theme of fear in our story today, there already is fear displayed in the very first verse of the passage. Ahimelech, the priest, approaches David and he's trembling. So why would Ahimelech be afraid? We can see by Ahimelech's question, why are you alone and no one with you? So Ahimelech has this sense that something is wrong. Shouldn't David have hundreds or thousands of men by his side? What is he doing straggling into Nob by himself? David answers Ahimelech's question, sufficiently, or perhaps Ahimelech still has doubts. David speaks of a secret mission from the king. Now, this answer doesn't seem like it's the whole truth, but I think that what David is trying to do here is protect Ahimelech from Saul. In Saul's mind, a friend of David is an enemy of Saul, but at least with David's explanation, Ahimelech can tell Saul truthfully, if he's ever asked, that he had no idea what was going on. David is hungry, his men are hungry, and, and David needs a weapon. Ahimelech the priest gives David holy bread and the sword of Goliath. It does seem strange that David would go on a secret mission without a weapon, but Ahimelech holds off on the questions for the most part. But he does have one question, and that's to confirm that David and his men are clean, that they can eat of the holy bread. Now, it's interesting, even with that said, that Ahimelech would be willing to give this bread to David. We know from other places in the scriptures that, that this holy bread is set aside only for the priests to eat once it's taken away. And yet Ahimelech willingly gives it to David. Jesus would later uh, speak of this act in more than one gospel. One place would be in Mark chapter 2. And he would point out that what the priest did was right. Jesus used this as an illustration to say that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
In other words, Ahimelech the priest was carrying out the spirit of the law by possibly saving David's life rather than the letter of the law. Verse 7, right in there is a hint of bad things to come. As the narrator mentions one Doeg the Edomite, a foreigner, a servant of Saul who was there. So David moves on from the town of the priests of Nob, and, and where does he go? In scene 2, from verses 10 to 15, David goes to the land of the Philistines. He goes to Gath. One can imagine David would cause quite a stir. He has the giant sword of Goliath strapped to his side and goes into Goliath's hometown. Now, I think, I think we can understand that David's quite desperate to be thinking that, oh, being in the land of the Philistines would be safer than being closer to where Saul is. And perhaps David didn't realize how much his reputation had gone before him. The song, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, wasn't just a popular song in Israel. It had already, like, was going platinum in, in, in other countries. And out of those ten thousands, how many of those would have been Philistines? So now it's David's turn to be afraid. Right? Just thinking, perhaps the Philistines are thinking, now is the time for revenge. And so David gets ready for the performance of his life, and he pretends to go mad. His drool's running down his beard. He's like, he's like scratching, clawing the, the, the gates. And Akish, the king of, of Gath, is convinced. He has no need for, for more madmen to be brought into his presence. I guess that's what he thinks of the politicians in his court. And so David moves on to another place. David flees. He escapes from that danger. So scene three is the cave of Adullam. This is back in Israel, in Judah. David's relatives go to him there. And those in distress, those in debt, those bitter in soul, go to him there. During Saul's kinship, there's many hopeless Israelites. And many of these men go and, and, and put in their lot with David. So here David already has 400 men gathered to him. Scene 4 moves on to Moab. We see that David's relationship with the king of Moab is much different than David's relationship with the king of the Philistines. Perhaps that has something to do with the fact that David's great-grandmother was Ruth, the Moabitess. So David and Moab have, a, have a, this family bond in which he can entrust his parents' safety to the people of Moab. The story of Ruth is also one in which God was mightily working behind the scenes. One of the phrases that uh, like I enjoy in Ruth is it would say again and again, it, it just so happened, like a divine coincidence. And here it just so happened that not only would God use Ruth to be the great-grandmother of David, but God would use Ruth's relatives to protect David's own parents. Let's also not neglect chapter 22, verse 5, where there's this appearance of a prophet 
who speaks God's words to David, telling him to go back to the land of Judah. Here, through God's prophet, God directs David to where he should go. God has never left David. In our story so far, God uses his priest, and God uses his prophet to bless his chosen king. God's protection on our story might not be blaring through the loudspeakers, but it's in the background and it's shining through at different times. If all the world's a play, then we should give credit to the writer and director of this play. God is protecting his chosen king. In this passage, we don't get too much insight into David's emotions as he runs for his life, other than in verse 12, which speaks of David being much afraid. But this is another example in which we're given more insight into David's emotional and spiritual state at the time by looking at one of the Psalms of David. So earlier this morning, you heard Christine read most of Psalm 34. The little letters above this psalm, the the superscript gives us the context for when David wrote it, for when he was pretending to be mad and then was driven out from Abimelech's presence. It does seem like Abimelech may be more of a title than, than just a name. In the book of Genesis, there was more than one king of the Philistines named Abimelech. So calling Akish Abimelech perhaps is, is also making this connection here between Akish and Abimelech and David and Abraham in a foreign land. David is representing Israel just as Abraham did. So what does Psalm 34 say? Psalm 34 verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. As afraid as David may have been, and he would have still been on the run as he wrote this, he speaks of the deliverance that God has already brought about. There's another verse to highlight, and that would be verse 20, which says, He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Here David is speaking of the righteous. Not one of his bones will be broken. There's another place earlier in the Bible where it's important that no bones be broken, and that is in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. That lamb is meant to be holy, with no bones broken, as God commanded in Exodus 12. Why bring up these connections? God's protection, no broken bones, a Passover lamb. Because I think what we see is that the writer and director of history was using the Passover lamb and using David's experience and David's words as prophecy. And so when Jesus hung on the cross, even though the men to his right and to his left had their bones broken, Jesus' bones were not broken. And so John 19, verse 36 says, 
For these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus was the ultimate righteous man that David spoke of. Jesus was a sacrificial Passover lamb that was meant to remain whole. Every detail of the death of Jesus was part of the plan of the sovereign king of history. So why does it matter that Jesus would die perfect and holy, the righteous lamb of God? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I basically have no advice for you on facing your fears. Instead, I want to tell you that you should be afraid of God's judgment and God's anger against you for not worshiping him as he deserves. So don't be numb to feelings of guilt. Don't numb your conscience or or give excuses. There is a God who created this world and, and he demands our obedience. The bad news is that you have disobeyed God. You have turned away from God, and you keep on disobeying him. You might not think you're disobeying God, but ignoring God and not giving him the honor he is due is what we call sin. The good news is that God sent Jesus to take the punishment that you and I deserve. Imagine you were sentenced by a judge to life in prison or to a death sentence, and and the judge's son, who has committed no crimes, volunteers to go to jail for life for you. That's just a little taste of what happened at the cross. Just as the Passover lamb took the place of the lives of the sons of Israel, Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb, takes our place. Just as God protected David for his purposes, God would protect the dead body of his son Jesus from being broken by Roman soldiers. Jesus' death is filled with symbolism. It's filled with the fulfillment of prophecy from hundreds of years before Jesus lived and died. And the Apostle John recorded these details in order that you would believe. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to urge you to repent, to turn away from your sins, from living for yourself, and to believe, to trust that Jesus is who he said he is. He died and he rose again. And I would be more than happy to talk to this more, talk about this more with you later. So would other Christians in the room. And we'd be more than happy for it to be more than one conversation. So even something as as terrible, as unjust, as the death of Jesus, is all part of God's plan to save God's enemies, to save us from the punishment of death. So what a wonderful and loving, merciful God we serve. That brings us to the end of Act 1, the anointed king, on the run. Let's move on to Act 2, the enemies of God. The enemies of God. 
In this act, we also see terrible injustice that's still somehow part of God's plan. Please look with me, starting at chapter 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nam, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also was with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. So here our story picks up on on the events that happened right at the beginning in chapter 21. So act two, the scene shifts back to Saul. Saul continues to seem to be always holding his spear at this point. And Saul begins with a really whiny speech. This is not a very kingly speech. First, Saul appears to have appeals to everyone's greed. Look at all that I can give you. Look at all that I've already given you. And then, then he talks about how suspicious he is of everyone and complains about it. No one tells me. No one is sorry for me. Even my own son is against me. Let's have a royal kitty party. 
And, and this does make me think of the king in Disney's Robin Hood, if you've seen it. He's, he's sucking his thumb and he's crying, whining for his mama. But anyways, there's a man who wants to prove his loyalty to Saul, and that's Doeg the Edomite. If you scan this passage, you see that nearly every time Doeg is mentioned, he's called Doeg the Edomite. I don't think that is a coincidence. wants us to be very, very clear that, that this person is a foreigner. He's uncircumcised. He's not a follower of God. Doeg is a descendant of Esau. And so Doeg the Edomite tells Saul how Ahimelech the priest had helped David, even inquiring of the Lord for David. And so King Saul obviously thinks that all the priests now are conspiring against him with David. When Saul questions Ahimelech, Ahimelech can't answer honestly. David truly did not explain to Ahimelech what was going on. And David assumes, he almost sounds a little indignant here, he assumes that David is still in good standing in the king's court. But Saul still believes in this conspiracy that he's made up in his own mind. And so Saul commands that his men kill the priests of the Lord. But not even Saul's servants were willing to kill God's priests. Saul's servants could not in good conscience obey their earthly king and slaughter the Lord's priests. And so Saul tells Doeg, the Edomite, to kill the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, does it. But not only the priests, but every man and woman, child and baby, and even all the animals in Nob, the city of priests. So consider with me how evil Saul's action is. As an act of God's punishment against the Amalekites, Saul, for selfish reasons and fear of man, was not willing to completely destroy a city that deserved God's punishment in 1 Samuel 15. But here, Doeg the Edomite on Saul's behalf massacres an entire Israelite city. And not just any city, but the city of the priests of the Lord. And we thought the Philistines were bad. Here Saul aligns himself with the enemies of God, taking his stand to kill the priests of God and to kill innocent Israelites. But the mysterious thing about how God is at work in this story is that the death of the priests and Nob is also part of the fulfillment of prophecy. This is part of the punishment against Eli and Eli's house that we read of earlier in 1 Samuel. The man of God in 1 Samuel 2, verse 31, had told the priest Eli that there would come a day when there would not be an old man in his house. And so even this great wickedness is part of God's plan punish the house of Eli. Now, does that in any way lessen 
the great evil that took place? No. Does that in any way make Saul less guilty of his crime? No. Saul ordered this killing. Saul was acting as God's enemy. And yet even this is under God's sovereign ordering of history. But in God's mercy, the prophecy against Eli's house has not been yet completely fulfilled. In God's mercy, one priest escapes and flees to David. His name is Abiathar. David, who had experienced great fear in the land of the Philistines, now assures the fugitive priest, do not be afraid. In contrast to Saul killing the priests of the Lord, David welcomes a priest of the Lord. Not only had the debtors come to David, not only would God speak to David through his prophet Gad, but now God's priest was also by David's side. And who did Saul have by his side at this point? Seems like he just had Doeg, the Edomite. Brothers and sisters, in this section, what I hope we can take away is that even God's enemies cannot act outside the will of God. And that should be of, of comfort to us. Even this terrible evil act was ultimately part of God's plan to punish the house of Eli, a prophecy that... Um, that was given when Samuel was still a child. And God continues to reign over this world in this way today. And some terrible things in this world are happening today. Many thought that World War II would teach us all never to have a war again. But that's not the case. And in times of war, whether it's in Ukraine or the Gaza Strip or elsewhere, we hear of terrible things happening. But even when we don't understand why God would allow such things to happen, we can take comfort in the fact that God has allowed it to happen. Just as God allowed evil men to crucify his son in a brutal act of injustice, even the unjust acts that we see in the world today and the unjust acts that may be committed against us personally, God will bring about his greater purposes. In the grand scheme of things, God sees, God knows, God has compassion, and current events will never spin out of his control, even when it feels like they are. And so let us say to one another, as David said to Abiathar the priest, do not be afraid. Some have pointed to the existence of evil to make a case against a loving God. But I would argue that the existence of evil without a God would make for a hopeless and meaningless world. The existence of evil with a God who is compassionate and who is in control gives us hope that even when we experience evil and suffering, God is still at work for our good and for his glory.
So that's good reason not to fear. That brings us to the end of Act 2, the enemies of God. So we come to Act 3, God protects his anointed. God protects his anointed. Please look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar the son of Ahimelech had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men who were about 600 arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul saw him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. No one see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, 
he pursued, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So did you notice God's protection of David in this story? Notice how God leads David in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 23. Time after time, David inquires after inquires of God and God answers. First, David inquires of God whether or not to lead his men to save the Israelite town of Keilah. Notice the, the contrast here. Saul had just massacred an entire Israelite town, and David goes to risk his life to save an Israelite town. David and his men trust in the Lord and in spite of the fear that his men feel. It really doesn't make sense for fugitives to come out into the open. But that is what they do. They listen to God's direction. Saul so sees this, this as an opportunity to trap David. And David inquires of God again, finding out that Caleb would surrender their deliverers to Saul. David and his men leave the, the thankless town of Caleb to hide in the wilderness. And so by God's leading, David continues to hide. And in the middle of this chapter, perhaps when David needed it the most, he receives a visit from his best friend, Jonathan. The story makes it sound like an easy thing for, for Jonathan to find David. Well, that's interesting. Saul has been sending his spies everywhere and still hasn't found David. But Jonathan simply goes to David. Perhaps the question isn't, why is it so easy for Jonathan to find David? The question should be, why is it so hard for Saul to find David? The end of verse 14 answers that question. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. God was stopping Saul from finding David, whereas God opened the way for Jonathan to find David. Now Jonathan, it says that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Jonathan helped David to find his courage in God. Notice also how Jonathan begins by saying, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. Jonathan understands that God has anointed David as the next king, so God will not allow David to die at the hands of Saul. Jonathan doesn't really have the whole picture. He also expects to be seated with David, to be basically in David's court when David reigns. But he doesn't have the whole picture. But what he does know is what God has promised to David. And Jonathan says that even his father knows this. After this exchange, Jonathan returns home. This is the last time recorded in the Bible that Jonathan would meet David. 
God's protection continues with an almost comical escape scene. The Ziphites are willing to tell Saul where David is. They invite Saul to come. And now Saul and his men are chasing David. If this were in a movie, maybe we could be hovering high above, seeing this mountain, and seeing on one side Saul and his men catching up on David and his men. And maybe right before they can glimpse David and his men, a messenger comes to Saul and tells him the Philistines have come. And Saul, for some reason, decides that, that he must go and do his duty and go and fight the Philistines. So the timing of this escape makes me think that, again, the narrator is winking at us and saying, look how God is protecting his chosen king. In considering how, how God's divine protection applies to our lives today, let us return to this theme of fear that has come up throughout our passage this morning. So brothers and sisters, what causes you to be afraid? What causes you to be anxious? What, what makes it hard to go to sleep at night? Kids as well. Whether you're in grade school, middle school, high school, what causes you to be afraid? What causes you to get worried? Are you afraid of not being liked by your classmates? Are you afraid of what others will think if you stand up for something you believe is right? Are you afraid that if you defend someone who's being picked on by someone else, that a bully or someone mean might pick on you too? And perhaps our fears really haven't changed that much since middle school. Are we afraid of not being liked by our coworkers? Are we afraid of what those in our social circles would think if we stood up for what we believe is right? Are we afraid that if we defend someone who's being treated poorly by a boss, that our boss would redirect that attitude towards us? But why is it that we are afraid of these things? Very often we're afraid of the consequences that an action will have in the future, aren't we? We're afraid that the worst possible thing might happen. But how does God direct us to deal with our fears? Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God, not by giving David new information, not by helping him scout out the land, but simply by reminding David of what David already knew was true, of what God had already promised. God had chosen to have David anointed as the next king of Israel, and so David would be the next king of Israel. Jonathan trusted that what God had planned would be carried out, and he reminded David of this. So this is what we need to do with ourselves and with other brothers and sisters here. We need to remind ourselves and remind one another of God's promises to the believer. We need to remind 
one another of truth that we know. One passage that comes to mind, one example could be Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So speaking to Christians, God is working spiritual good in all of us. For the Christian, even the difficult things in our lives are ultimately for our own spiritual good. God is using these things to grow us in holiness. As we realize how God is at work for our good, we're reminded not to fear. We're reminded we can trust God with our lives. We're reminded of the truth of the children's song that God does have the whole world in his hands. And as we grow in trusting God, as we grow in understanding and believing that God truly is in control, we can be more purely concerned with pleasing God and less worried about how other people may view us. So brothers and sisters, let us remind one another that God is doing spiritual good in our lives, that God has a plan for our lives. Let us also remind one another that even if the worst possible scenario happens, even if that bully does pick on you, God is still in control. God was still in control in our story in 1 Samuel this morning. God was in control of the events that led to the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And God is in control of what is going on in the world today. So brothers and sisters, as we grow in the fear of the Lord, this deep respect, this awe before God's might, the things that we're afraid of become small. Did David have good reason to fear Goliath? Did David have good reason to fear Saul? From the perspective of the world, of course. But from God's perspective, David had no reason to fear because God was with David. And God continues to be with his people today. God is the king over all history, and we already know how the history of this world will end. Jesus will return as king, the lion and the lamb the Alpha and Omega. And death and Satan will be utterly defeated. So brothers and sisters, let us remind one another that God's plans for his people cannot be thwarted. God is the author of history and he rules over history. He is our refuge and our stronghold. So we have no reason to be afraid. Let's go to our God now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for you are God, for you are reigning over us and over this world. We praise you for you are the King. We praise Jesus for he is the sacrificial lamb. Lord, we do pray that, that when we are afraid, that we would trust in you that we would remind one another of, of truth, of who you are and how you continue to uh, be at work in our lives and in this world. And Lord, would we remind one another um, of your plans, your good plans for us. 
Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.